Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. Ask any young football fan to name the most successful English clubs in terms of title wins. And they'd probably correctly guess the top three, Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal. But the fourth club may come as a surprise to anyone born within the last 40 years. Not Manchester City or even Chelsea, but an older and more revered club founded decades before Chelsea, Everton. The club was founded in 1878 by members of St Domingo's Methodist Church in Liverpool. A decade later, Everton were one of the founder members of the Football League. The club regularly produced successful sides over the next century before going into a rapid decline in the 1990s. In this episode, I explore the history of the club with the help of those who know it best, the fans, generations of whom have grown up on Merseyside. One man whose family were there from the very beginning is John McFarlane. I was born in, in the district of Everton, the Mill Road Hospital, and it's about three or four hundred yards from where we lived. The house was 75 Everton Road. I'm an Evertonian by birth, but I've been born in Everton. I'll be 84 in July and I've got my season ticket. My granddad was 13 when the Football League was formed. He was born in 1875, so being Evertonians in the family, right from the beginning of the Football League, my grandson went to Leicester on Sunday He's 18, so we're just carrying on what, uh, what my granddad started. So, John, you started attending games in 1948. What are your first memories of the club? The first one I can actually remember, well, it was a Christmas of 1949, and my mum must have been in the hospital at that time because I was staying at my grandma's. We won 1-0 on Christmas Day. We beat Burnley 1-0, and I remember Jimmy McIntosh scoring the goal. And I was going home to a nice Christmas dinner. My mum died when, um, in 1950. So my mum died before Everton got relegated. And my grandmother took us on. I didn't go to any away matches then, but my uncle Phil, Everton were in second division, and he played Lincoln on Good Friday. And he said, if we beat Lincoln, I'll take you to Lincoln. For the, you know, to, over the holiday period. Anyway, Everton did win. And my first away game was at Lincoln City. And we drew 1-1. A few weeks after that, the second away game was Oldham Athletic away, and we beat them 4 0 and got promoted. Had we won 6 0, we would have been League you know, second division champions. But we, it was 4 0 at half time, and then Oldham started a little bit of roughhouse tactics, and um, it finished up for but another two goals, and Everton would have been second division champions, but they came up as runners up. 
So what was football like in the era after the war compared with the modern game? Football was a, a work and man's game. It was, it was the lad who went to work in the factory or down the docks. His weekend revolved, you know, football was his, that's what he looked forward to. Well, Everton had clubhouses and most of the players lived in, you know, in the properties that Everton owned. For instance, if Everton was selling a player, the fellow who came to replace him would swap houses, basically. I feel sorry for the players in those days because the manager would say, oh, you're going to play for Bristol City. The players had no arguments. If they were told that they were needed, they went and that was it. The players would travel to the match with the supporters. Everybody either walked, got the tram car, or some cycled and they would, um, they would park the, the cycles in the backyards. Sometimes you'd see, you know, a coal wagon going past, a flat-back coal wagon, and there'd be 10 or 20 people standing on the back going to the match. In, in the old days, you'd wear a, a, a top, a, you know, an Everton top, and it would, it would wear a ton, you know, with, like, like the rugby jerseys. And the, the pitches were disgraceful. You know, <laughs> particularly um, Derby County and Bolton Wanderers, they had... Um, but even, even Everton and Liverpool, the pitches were... Nowadays... The pitches on the, on the last day of the season are as good as they were on the first day of the season. But that didn't happen in our days. It, it, oh, there wasn't a blade of grass in, in, the, in the goal areas. The standard of football is it, it, it's on a different plane now, you know, especially teams like Liverpool and Manchester City. There's more, there's more skill in the game now, individual skill in Toronto now, you know, and, and team organisation. There's a lot more of that. But... It doesn't seem to, you know, to, to me and probably to fellows of my age. I don't think there's the same enjoyment. I think since Sky got involved and it, 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 it's always been about money. The, the richest club always sort of got the, the cream. But now um, the money is ridiculous. Family ties and geography account for many in Evertonian. But one fan, Derek Knox from Scotland, was drawn to the club by love. All my mates I used to go to school with, they either supported Dundee United, Dundee or Hearts. I liked Dundee United, but I wasn't like a, a committed supporter. The bulk of my mates supported Hearts, so every every few weeks, because we had to get a train through to Edinburgh to watch them, I used to go through with them. I fell in love with a guy called Alex Young. Young with a shot, it's a goal! Oh, a great goal! You know, no wonder they called him the Golden Vision. And then I found out that he'd gone to Everton. Young moved south with teammate George Thompson in 1960 in a double deal that saw Everton pay the Scottish club £55,000. I joined the Royal Navy then when I was 17, 16. I met my first wife and she was from Liverpool. All the family were, were Evertonian, so I started going to the games then, you know, when I was at home on leave. And that was me, I was hooked from then on in. That's how I became an Everton supporter. Derek's conversion to Everton came out to an opportune time, as the club emerged from a post-war slump and embarked on a new era of success. In 1960, Everton bought in Tommy Ring, Roy Vernon, Mickey Lill and Jimmy Gabriel. They bought those in the, base, in the space of about five weeks and that was the building, no, that was the, the building foundation for the success that followed. We'd never seen that, that kind of player. You know, they were class players. They were the first players of our generation post Tommy Lawton although I saw Tommy Lawton play I saw him playing against Everton Tommy Lawton and Dixie Dean were of another era 
we, we hadn't seen anything like that. We'd seen Everton relegated and struggling in the, in the first division. It's only in the 1960 when Johnny Moore's invested. That's when we started seeing football the way football should be played. Everton's success continued from the 1960s into the 70s, with World Cup winner Alan Ball playing a key role alongside Howard Kendall and Colin Harvey in a trio that were dubbed the Holy Trinity. Kendall and Harvey returned to the club as manager and first team coach respectively, and led the club to its most successful period during the 1980s. Since then, a solitary cup success in 1995 has done little to keep the club in the public spotlight. Nonetheless, the fan base continues to grow. During lockdown in 2020, a sketch of the club's logo went viral after being shared on Twitter by current Everton striker Richarlison. The picture came from an unlikely source, Dominic Hodgson, a teenager born in leafy Hertfordshire, hundreds of miles from Merseyside, to a Burnley-supporting father. So Dominic, how did you end up becoming an Everton fan? Family tradition, all from Father Hanton. Father Joseph Hanton was born on Merseyside just after World War I. As a young Evertonian, he watched from the terraces as the club's greatest ever player, Dixie Dean, scored 60 goals in a single season. It's an English scoring record that has never been broken. He continued watching games regularly through the 30s and 40s, as players such as Tommy Lawton and Dave Hickson attempted to fill Dean's boots. Beyond football, Hanton was a devout Catholic and was ordained as a priest in the Redemptorist Order. The Jesuits boast that if you give them a child by age seven, you'll have a Catholic for life. Father Hanson had similar success with producing lifelong Evertonians. As one of his first converts, Anthony Welsh explains. My family moved down from Scotland and Father Hanson moved down from Liverpool around the same time. They kind of became friends because they were from up north and they moved into the area at the same time. My memory of Father Hanson was one where he was actually sort of at the house quite a lot growing up. We'd sort of come over for a whiskey or a cup of tea and my dad didn't have a team because he, he grew up more with rugby. Father Hanson basically figured out I guess that there was this kid who loved football but didn't have a team. He would sort of suddenly bring along Everton kits or Everton programs. That was where it first kicked in and, and then I suddenly knew these names like Sheedy or Stephen or there were a lot of S's all our best players seemed to start with a letter S the um, first Everton kit I had I think was the 84 cup final I had no idea that Everton existed miles and miles away from where I actually lived it's funny as a young kid you just don't comprehend that and I never did I always remember him would say he would say about Liverpool with a totally straight face as well, which is what, what makes me smile about this. He would sit there and he would say Liverpool never had any style. Even when they had the great teams, he would say no style. They never had any style. And that always just, just makes me smile. Aside from house visits, Anthony Welsh also regularly encountered Father Hanson at St Joseph's Catholic School, where he was to school chaplain. Father Hanton quickly set about ensuring all the kids at the school supported Everton, and there were bizarre scenes in 1984 when Everton found themselves in the FA Cup final against Watford, a local team from Hertfordshire. Everyone in the school was encouraged to bring flags, scarves and shirts to celebrate the upcoming final. 
But there was one solitary Watford fan, despite the fact the team was close by, among a sea of Evertonians. So he had a presence in the place. He just seemed to be able to drop this Everton cloud over the place that just seemed to pick up people that were converted, then ended up maybe converting the other old kid. Sir Dominic, Father Hanton passed away in 2001. You weren't born until four years later. But you mentioned Father Hanton as a reason for supporting Everton. So presumably his legacy through the school and the parish still lives on. In primary school, there was one teacher who gave me like 10 house points for being an Everton fan. One of the youngest members of the Everton diaspora in Hertfordshire is Isaac Chisnell. His mother went through Father Hanton's indoctrination at school, and perhaps unsurprisingly, she ended up marrying into an Everton-supporting family from Lancashire. Those family ties did have an effect on Isaac's choice to support the club. However, family ties alone weren't quite enough to get Isaac to commit to Everton. In fact, it took a little bribe from someone in influence to secure his loyalty. So, all my family were Everton fans, and I met Bill, the Everton chairman. It was quite big to meet him, and he gave me a jumper. Hertfordshire is far from unique in having an expansive Everton fan base. In fact, you can find supporters of the club in different pockets all around the world. Many of them engage with one another on the popular website ToffeeWeb, which is edited by Lyndon Lloyd. There's a phenomenal number of countries that people visit the site from, uh, but obviously the, the core audience is obviously in the UK. There's, a, there's obviously a big following in the United States, Australia, South Africa, Scandinavia, you know, Central Europe to a lesser degree. That's the, obviously the glory of the, uh, the beauty of the internet. You can provide something in, in, in one location that's accessible all, all over the world. It's, it's a great way of bringing Evertonians together from across the world and you know, providing a, a forum that, that, that's, a, that's a great leveller in many ways. For, you know, for, for people who don't even who, who are in England but don't live close enough to Merseyside, um, they're almost uh, in the same boat in terms of um, following the club from afar. So it's a, it's a great source of pride, actually, that people get so much out of it. For all those fans, this season, by any standards, has been a poor one, as Everton have teetered on the brink of relegation. And even young Isaac Chisnell doesn't hold back in his criticism. Our managers haven't been great this season and our team players haven't been too good either. So Lyndon, on Toffee Web, is it my imagination or do you tend to get more posts when Everton are struggling versus when they have a good result? Yeah, I don't, th- I don't think you're wrong. There are many more ways to say that the team has played badly than they have played well. You know, there's a lot more, a lot more um, you can talk about when things are going wrong. I think it's just human nature to try and either dwell on the negative or dissect the negative or try and fix the negative. You know, it's, it's just that I think it's just that impulse where if something's wrong or if something's not gone according to plan that you want to try and pick it apart and argue about it to death. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I see, I see that on social media. Honestly, speaking for myself, I'm more active as a writer from an opinion um, editorial standpoint when we're not doing as well. But complaints about Everton are nothing new. In fact, the malaise affecting the club has been going on for several decades, as Anthony Welsh recalls. I mean, I remember having a season ticket only for a couple of years. Unfortunately, I had a season ticket in when Walter Smith came in, right at the back end 
the 90s. I often reflect on that. What bad timing. Four years before Walter Smith's arrival as manager, Everton had won the FA Cup. It remains the last trophy the team has ever won. During Smith's tenure, Everton ran into financial problems and the club was sold by owner Peter Johnson to a consortium headed by theatre impresario and Everton fan Bill Kenwright. Kenwright lacked the financial clout of other club owners of the era such as Jack Walker. In fact, his main selling point was that as a fan, he had the best interests of the club at heart. What followed was a decade of improvement under David Moyes, although the club seemed to be trapped under a glass ceiling, always finishing fifth or sixth on the table without winning any silverware. As owner and more recently chairman, Kenwright has presided over a three decades long period without any tangible success. It's the longest period in the club's history that they failed to win a trophy. It's something that has tarnished the legacy of Kenwright in the eyes of many fans. You have to look at Kenwright and when he joined and how Everton were one of the clubs that had the most titles. And then obviously now the titles have stayed the same across those 30 years, but all the other clubs have just gone miles ahead of us. But I blame Kenwright a lot for that. You know, he's... All his deals have been in his favour. A friend of mine, he was an accountant at Man City before the Mansours took over. But he was talking to them and all the rest of it. And they said, oh, we're going to come in and have a clear out. But he said, he said, we weren't really interested in Man City. The, the two clubs we were really interested in was Everton and West Ham. Because they, owned the, they were the only two clubs at the time that owned their own grounds. They were going to invest in the Liverpool airport, make it the Etihad Centre, you know, for the airways. And Bill Kenwright vetoed it because he wasn't allowed to stay on as chairman. Many fans trace the roots of Everton's decline to 1985, a point in time where Everton was in the midst of the most successful era in its history. But the causes were nothing to do with Everton and much more to do with events elsewhere. I think it's both stagnation and downturn. I think it's just been a, uh, a steady decline. I mean, obviously... You know, the roots of it are in the Heisel ban. In 1985, at the European Cup final, supporters of Liverpool Football Club engaged in a riot that led to the deaths of dozens. As a consequence of their actions, English clubs were banned from European competition. To the extent that it affected Everton being one of all of English clubs, obviously the English ban led to the fragmentation of that title-winning team of 1987. So some of the players headed north to Rangers. Uh, Howard Kendall obviously went to Spain. There was a breakup of that, of what was arguably the best team in Europe. And although they won the title, obviously, in in 87, with with a pretty impressive, actually, patchwork of a mixture of journeyman players and obviously some of the stars from that 85 team. I don't think that, that Everton managed that transition very well. And certainly when you look at how Manchester United sort of timed everything with their kind of golden generation right when the Premier League started, I think there was a, a level of uh, complacency at Everton that, that I think they realised well before it was uh, before it was too late that uh, that they sort of let things get away from them, and you know once you've gone into a decline, it's very hard to to pull yourself out of it and rectify it. And obviously, we've been trying for the best part of thirty years since to um, to do that. The nearest thing to success Everton have had in recent years is merely avoiding the indignity of relegation, having come close to the drop three times in the last few decades. But having witnessed one relegation 
70 years ago is not an experience Everton fan John McFarlane would like to repeat. I was 12 going on 13. And my dad, as I say, my dad never had any interest in football. I, I cried when Everton got relegated. And he said, come on, lad, we'll go to picture you up. And he thought, by taking me to the pictures stroke cinema, he thought that that would wipe the slate clean. No, he didn't understand football in that. Oh, it was horrible. And all Everton had to do that day was stop Sheffield Wednesday from scoring a nil-nil draw and Everton would have been saved. They got beat 6-0. And Sheffield Wednesday went down with us. With relegation fits having been laid once again in 2022, Everton fans are hoping for a brighter future at a new home, a custom-built stadium in Bramley Moor, which is due to open in 2024. But the move is bittersweet. After a hundred years, Goodison Park, the current home, holds many great memories, and fans such as Derek Knox have mixed feelings about the move. I had a season ticket for years in Bullens Road. I was right in the front row, just to the Gladys Street uh, side of the halfway line. What a fantastic view it was from there, because you saw both goals, there was no obstructions, the full game side on, you know, as as if you were watching it on the television. Whether the atmosphere will be the same is a matter of conjecture, but... Going to Goodison regularly, it, it is crumbling. It's literally crumbling. You've still got wooden seats in most of the stands. It really is like going, going back 100 years. It does need a massive, massive change. The plans for this new Bramley Moor dot, which I'm sure you've seen, they look fantastic. Plus, we've got the added capacity. We won't know until we actually get in there. But it's the fans that create the atmosphere. It's not the ground. Depending on how the, gra- the ground's designed acoustically, it can help. I'm sure that's been taken into consideration with the Bramley Moor dock that, you know, you get that echo going round when, when the fans start getting off the seats, cheering the boys on. It'll be easier to get to for a lot of people because it's, it's nearer the town centre than Goodison Park is at the moment. So I think, I think everything will even itself out. Beyond comfort and aesthetics, the new stadium should also provide much-needed additional revenue for the club as Lyndon Lloyd explains. The whole rationale really is to provide the foundation for those finances for for having much greater resources to drive the the club on. If it is built to the specs that were originally in the planning application, which there's no reason at the moment to think that they won't, and given that additional capacity, I don't think they're going to have many problems filling it, given the... uh, you know, the season ticket waiting list as it currently is. If it goes ahead and it's built and we and we move into it according to the timeline, then I think it has a very good chance of providing the stability that we need, provided, of course, that, uh, you know, we're not saddled with uh, with too much debt in the interim. It looks as though it's going to be privately funded and that Farhad Mashiri is going to be providing much of the capital, leaving Goodison Park, which I think a lot of opposition players will tell you is one of the hardest grounds to go to and play. I think that's going to be um, something that's going to be hard to replicate hard to replace but certainly in terms of the design they've done everything they can to try and mimic some of the more important uh, aspects of Goodison's uh, fingers crossed the fans and the, the, the spirit will take that with us and sort of breathe that life into the new ground. All that remains now is to get a team that's worthy of the new stadium and worthy of our fans. It's a special club isn't it there is just something about Everton it's certainly not your average football club.
Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Dan is back as he interviews the heroic in Season 3 of Fascinating People, Fascinating Places. He talks to NASA astronauts and examines the space program. Here is a sneak peek. the day when Moscow Radio was describing you making the flight, there appeared in our communist newspaper, The Daily Worker, the report that the flight had been made successfully and that the flyer had returned to the Earth. And that report was dated from Moscow the day before. This created the impression, of course, that another flight had taken place and you had flown second, and nobody has ever dispelled this yet. Will you do it now? Могу совершенно компетентно вам заявить, что Well, I can assure you quite authoritatively that evidently the correspondent of that paper felt he was better informed than the actual people who are in charge of this work in the Soviet Union. They were guinea pigs because they simply didn't have the understanding of what they were doing. At 10.36 this morning, Apollo 8 went around the far side of the moon at just over 7,000 miles an hour into a complete radio blackout that was to last 47 minutes. I definitely knew I was going to be an astronaut. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Our task was to get a discovery with HST into the proper orbit. We, at the time, we really didn't know how humans would respond to those G-forces. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Largely propaganda. I'm a believer that it's likely, just because of the, what we've come to learn about how many worlds there are, how common the organic uh, the elements are that you know, lead to organic compounds. 